Good morning, everyone. Good morning, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds on this wintry morning. Thank you all for coming. We're going to soon learn about wilderness medicine from Dr. Harris. To introduce him to us uh, will be Scott Rohde. Scott is an associate professor of medicine and is serving in the role as the section chief of emergency medicine. So, Scott, tell us about Dr. Harris. Interim role. <laughs> <laughs> he has to point. I do. He just keep trying to remind everybody. Good morning. Uh, welcome. Thank you for coming. It is my pleasure both personally and on behalf of our section to introduce to you Dr. Stuart Harris. Uh, Dr. Harris is an associate professor of emergency medicine at Harvard. He is the chief of the Division of Wilderness Medicine at Mass General. He is the founder and director of the Wilderness Medicine Fellowship at Mass General, which was the second wilderness medicine fellowship in the country. In that context, he co-authored the uh, Curriculum for Wilderness Medicine uh, Fellowships. He recently partnered with the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine to develop an accreditation process for Wilderness Medicine Fellowships. He edits the definitive textbook in Wilderness Medicine, sort of the equivalent of Harrison's in the world of emergency medicine. Um, he has been incredibly generous with his time. He came up on Tuesday evening in weather not dissimilar to this morning's uh, and gave grant rounds for our residency and for our section on Wednesday. Yesterday, he was our keynote speaker at the Crest Symposium, and this morning has stayed despite the weather to, to join us. And we'll be talking, I think, broadly about wilderness medicine uh, and uh, how it intersects with other specialties and, and uh, how it can be a collaborative part in the, the House of Medicine. Stewart grew up in Virginia. He went to uh, did his undergraduate work at the University of the South. He's referred a couple of times over the last few days to a misspent youth. Uh, which apparently included time as a fisherman in Alaska, a black belt in judo, a bronze medal in uh, open canoe nationals, and an MFA at the uh, Iowa Writers Conference. He eventually, luckily for us, found his way to medicine, went to the Medical College of Virginia, and then did a residency in emergency medicine at the Harvard Affiliated Program, where he continues on as faculty. Um, I've already alluded to some of his accomplishments. And I will only scratch a couple of more that are of interest. He um, is an instructor in the Knowles program and developed, and I believe continues to lead their month-long wilderness medicine course. He um, provided medical support for the National Park Service as a climbing ranger in Denali. He led Harvard's response to the tsunami in uh, Japan in 2011, and on and on and on. Um, his research interest is in uh, low oxygen states using uh, high altitude as a model. Um, he is interested in the provision of medical care to remote and underserved communities. Uh, I, I think not specifically, but, but uh, significantly in the Himalayas and in uh, remote areas of Alaska, and is increasingly interested in the impact of global warming on public health and public policy to try to mitigate that. His timing, the timing of his visit is, is particularly apropos. Uh, many of you will know that our section has an interest in wilderness medicine. Many of our faculty members are instructors in wilderness medicine. We've been uh, hosting a wilderness medicine course um, annually in the White Mountains for a few years. And we are hoping to um, start a fellowship in wilderness medicine and bring our first fellow here, um, hopefully as early as 2020. So without any further ado, again, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Harris. Good morning, all. Um, this will be a very kind of laid-back 
interaction if at any point I'm not clear you have questions, please uh, fire away. Um, I really appreciate Scott's very generous introduction. Um, driving up today, I've said this the last two mornings, but today was even better. Um, driving up to the medical center with the conifers, the snow falling. If you've ever been to Lake Louise or Chateau up there, it's like, holy cow, you know, you can come to work and be in a place like this. It's a pretty sweet place to have. A number of people have kind of said, oh, you know, we're sorry about the weather. And it's like, if it's not weather like that for me, I'm probably not in the right place. So um, it's, it's a good thing. So the things I'm going to talk about today are, <clears throat> number one, the story does what? Uh, talk about wilderness medicine. Talk about our fellowship, not because it's any great shakes, just as a model that other people, um, some have used, some have chosen not to, and just to kind of familiarize you with what wilderness medicine is. The idea that academic medical centers um, are too often a series of walls, and rather than a prison, they're a runway. We need to be exporting the extraordinary talent that we have in academic medical centers. And I think you're well ahead of the curve just to see the telemedicine and other ways uh, that the expertise of a small area can be spread across a sparsely populated bigger area is absolutely critical of what we do. And then I'm going to talk briefly about uh, just one collaboration we have with our Department of Medicine, Chair of Medicine at MGH, Katrina Armstrong, is interested. We've uh, had a lot of fun collaborating. So with that, I'll start talking about medicine. So I often describe medicine as the love child between uh, science and story. And it's the humanities and the science coming together that really are at the heart of medicine. And kind of my, again, misspent youth was trying to figure out where the hell I wanted to be. Did I want to be a scientist? Did I want to be um, a physician? Did I want to be uh, a writer or maybe a PhD in English? And kind of back and forth. Uh, my folks are both uh, med, med school. Uh, my dad's a pulmonologist, so he'd be thrilled that I'm here speaking to the House of Medicine uh, today. But it was that battle within me that kind of uh, led me ultimately to medicine. And then to recognize, and it's one of those things that's so obvious that I think it sometimes gets short trips, both in our teaching and in our awareness at the bedside, that the diagnosis, the ferocious engine of diagnosis, is really based on story. So the vast majority of what we ultimately do in diagnosis, the tests we order, um, and other kind of supporting data we gather, are driven by a good history. And more importantly, it's not just a diagnostic engine, it's ultimately one of our best forms of therapy. It's cheap, it's easy, it's ultimately time efficient. I would argue rather than screwing around and having people go to eight different specialists, having not been listened to once, to invest a wee little bit of time up front is really critical. I will give a $20 bill to anybody who can tell me, how about the first person who can tell me? Uh, <laughs> I'm in academic medicine, and this is a smart room, so um, who that man is and why a sled in Russia made a figure end up talking about treatment of disease by listening. Somebody said Chekhov, I heard. Um, so that's Anton Chekhov, who trained as a physician before he became really the creator of the modern short story. He lived in Russia up through the very early 20th century. Uh, and he has a story called Misery that I highly recommend to you. Um, that it's essentially the story of a cabbie 
who on a day not unlike today, the snow's falling, uh, he has his horse pulling him around, his son has just died, and he's desperately wanting to tell anybody uh, just a portion of his sorrow. Uh, and he goes to a number of different people, and they ultimately blow him off. And at the very end of the story, he uh, goes up to his horse, tells uh, his story to his horse, it's hugely unburdened. And so in a day when we've got Lyft and Uber and you can't even talk to your, your horse, um, the ability of physicians to be there for other human beings to listen uh, to their story can be a tremendous therapy. So, how to make this practical? These are things that are often taught and sometimes not observed by me and others. You're a human being. We're in a human business. You know, use that humanity to your advantage. So sit down. Touch matters, I go in, I routinely check pulses, not because I care about the pulses, um, but just that physical act of touching, auscultation. I auscultate everybody. You come in with a knee lack, a finger fracture, you know, it takes maybe five seconds, and it's just that application of hand on the shoulder, stethoscope on the back, you're quite literally listening to the patient. Um, and it, it pays dividends. Um, sometimes the diagnosis, but more just in that rapport. Um, and for God's sake, it drives me crazy. I love my PCP to death, um, but, but I very, very rarely see him. Um, you know, computers between me and him. And I went to training with a guy. I love it, but it's like, dude, you know, just ditch the computer. Um, you know, just sit down and look me in the eye for a couple minutes rather than uh, So that's uh, pretty low-hanging fruit. And with that, I'll talk about wilderness medicine, which might seem like a bit of a jump, uh, but really that's what wilderness medicine is driven by, is that ferocious engine of diagnosis that is narrative and the universal application of it outside of a hospital. Well, I came up with this definition uh, a number of years ago to define where wilderness medicine is practiced and what it is. Um, and I describe it as kind of the practice of resource-limited medicine under austere conditions. And those two Venn diagrams really describe what it is uh, that we do and where it is that we do it. And then I'm sometimes asked, well, this crazy new thing called wilderness medicine, where did it come from? And my argument is that it's not new at all, that about 2,400 years ago on a small island off the coast of Greece, the island of Kos, the doctor sat down outside under a tree with a patient, with a student, and thus began the practice of Western medicine. And it's that same practice that whether in the ICU, in a busy emergency department, that has to be under what undergirds our practice as physicians. MGH is not new at M, uh, sorry, wilderness medicine is not new at MGH. We had people falling off of tall mountains uh, to their peril for 140 years. Um, and I used to joke about Mosley to my fellows, just saying, no, don't pull a Mosley. Don't go out and fall off a mountain and die. Um, and the more I've learned about him, he was like the uber, uber uh, dirtbag climber. At that time, the great medical centers of the world were in Europe. And so during the academic year, he was in Berlin. He was in Zurich studying. And then in the summer, he was climbing and doing some pretty cool stuff. So there have been people who have been broadly interested for a long time. So where is wilderness medicine practice? It's obviously practiced in wilderness areas as defined by the U.S. Congress in 64 and the 
But then it's also as a daily practice throughout the developing world, after disasters, both rural and urban, and I argue into the well-lit hallways of Mass General and other academic medical centers, what is wilderness medicine and why does it matter? The key thing is the expansion of access to care. So the idea that a patient has to come to you um, to be cared for is a little old-fashioned. We have the capacity to reach out to patients wherever they are, and that can be on the fall in Japan or um, on the side of a mountain. We teach essential medicine, again, getting back to that idea that it's a human interaction and the ability to take a good history uh, and to do a good physical exam, to expend a little neuronal ATP, to come to a diagnosis that you then confirm with testing. Um, it's just better medicine, and it's something that we can teach in uh, austere conditions where you have limited resources, and it's transferable, and it's a durable process. As uh, Scott said, we've had our medicine in the wild course with the National Outdoor Leadership School for the last 14 years, 28-day course in the Gila Wilderness of New Mexico, and there's a significant medicine component to it, a tremendous leadership component to it, the teaching of leadership, which I'm um, talking to a number of faculty here and residents. It's something we don't do a very good job of in medicine, um, the idea that leadership is a teachable uh, quality. And that's something we focus on. And I often say we go outside to become better doctors inside. One of the things that we'll be talking about, I'll be talking about later this morning, and that I think we're good at, and that is inevitably going to happen regardless, and so we ought to be out in front of it, is this idea of treating people outside of hospitals. As I was telling the EM group a couple days ago, things that would have inevitably been admitted to an ICU 20 years ago when I started practice are now on the floor, and people who would have inevitably been admitted are now you know, going home with home hospital and other things. And so developing techniques uh, of monitoring, of diagnosis, that we can preempt hospital care um, is definitely in our interest. So again, telling that group two days ago, I've got aging physician parents who they loathe hospitals. And the idea of needing to come into a hospital is uh, it's hard on them. It's hard on the family. You've got nosocomial reasons to stay the heck out. So if we can uh, move the dial and keep people outside of hospitals, it's uh, the right thing to do is better care, and ultimately it's uh, more efficient economically, which is ultimately, I think, what drives a lot of what we do. I didn't get into the disaster business, but the disaster business has kind of come to us. Um, the idea of resiliency and improving the robustness of medical structures has gotten to be pretty key to our work because we keep getting asked to go different places. As I had one nice uh, elderly member of the volunteer community and uh, at Mass General, we've got a lovely thriving volunteer community, but she said, it sounds like we're all one disaster away from wilderness medicine. And in some ways that's true. If you look at what Sandy did to the major medical centers of Manhattan, um, what we experienced in uh, immediately after the tsunami and earthquake in Japan, you know, these are things that it's great when you can come in, flip on the lights, flush the toilet, turn the tap, and have hot and cold running water. You can keep your patient warm or dry or um, cool, depending on the surrounding environment. But if all those things aren't true, you know, can you still provide good patient care? And the answer should be yes, we ought to be able to do that. Uh, we had people on the ground uh, leading the Nepal earthquake response. 
And um, it's something that we've got people right now uh, in Saipan where Typhoon U2 came through at 180 miles an hour um, and devastated uh, the island. So it's something that uh, we keep getting asked and we keep responding to interesting work. Um, it definitely it takes a toll on the individual and um, we try to stay on top of that, but I think it's something we do and a service we offer. As far as uh, how our research program has developed, we've done a bunch of different things, but as Scott mentioned, it's largely uh, undergirded by two things. One is an interest in hypoxia, and the other is uh, human health and climate change. So the research principles that guide what we do, uh, I loathe the cliche of think outside the box, but for me, the box is a hospital, and so thinking, you know, what the hell can we do outside of the hospital, pre-hospital, or ultimately not involving a hospital is something that's very interesting to me. Um, I like to go to like fundamental. In some cases, again, it's very simplistic, but to try to get to the base causes of diseases. And hypoxia uh, is obviously pretty low-hanging fruit. So as a universal life threat, it's uh, something that deserves to be paid attention to. People often ask me, it's like, well, what the hell are you doing in Boston, sea level Boston, studying high altitude disease? And the argument is that, well, you know, now two days ago, the acute MI I took care of, that's hypoxia on an organ level, the heart. And what's an acute stroke? The same thing in the brain. And on down the list, acute traumas uh, with hypertension and hypoperfusion, those are ultimately cellularly a lack of oxygen. So if we can better understand uh, what's going on, that's in our interest. The other things are looking towards uh, have developed because I was interested in the hypoxia. So I didn't have the tools I wanted, imaging and otherwise, to be able to go into the field. And so a lot of our research has ultimately been about uh, diagnostic and therapeutic technologies that we can apply. And then last, I'll talk about climate change and human health, some of the work we're doing there. Again, the interest in the hypoxia, it's been fascinating to see, I mentioned the Lake Louise, Chapter Lake Louise, that's the site of every year the Hypoxia Symposia. That is a gathering that originally was a mountain medicine, uh, so 35, 40 years ago, it's purely a mountain medicine uh, meeting where people who are interested in uh, how to pulmonary edema, cerebral edema, acute mountain sickness gathered. And about 20 years ago, 15 years ago, it very much became an oncology meeting because obviously some of the key gateways in oncology are hypoxia-related. And so being able to better understand uh, what's going on on the cellular and organelle level uh, is absolutely key to what we do. I'm going to talk very briefly about some of the work we're doing with Nancy Muthna and his team on mitochondria. Uh, again, as a universal life threat, if I can take an 18-year-old who doesn't have a 40-pack year smoking history, he's not on any hypertensive agents and diabetic agents, um, and I can reduce him to near death from high-altitude pulmonary edema, you know, in an hour or two, it can teach us something uh, in a, a clean clinical model. And so that's largely what we've been pursuing with the U.S. Army and otherwise. Again, this is from the New England Journal now a few years ago, but just that idea of the interplay between inflammation and hypoxia and hypoxia and inflammation and a bunch of different diseases um, adiposity is, I think, a particularly interesting area. The idea that there are just such extraordinarily low oxygen tensions in our fat that that is a means of 
uh, attacking a problem, but obviously uh, cancer is where the vast majority of money is right now. So the works that we've published, again, I started off with an interest in altitude illness and didn't have the tools uh, I wanted to be able to address them. So some of our first work, when we uh, were first rolling out ultrasounds, when I graduated from my residency in 06, there were no ultrasound fellowships anywhere in New England. Um, colleague who started the division of ultrasonography uh, at MGH had to go to New York to get trained, um, and there sort of felt weren't any wilderness medicine fellowships. Uh, and when it, it was first proposed that, you know, as a portable means of diagnostic imaging, if we could take an ultrasound in the field, wouldn't that be cool? And people are like, these are expensive machines, they break easily, it's going to be cold and sandy and spinning dryers are going to blow up at altitude, you know, this is crazy talk. And now obviously there are whole divisions of austere uh, ultrasonography because it is an extraordinarily uh, portable tool and with some of the newer uh, technologies, you can literally plug a probe, a $2,000 probe into your cell phone and take it in the field. So things are changing very quickly, and it's kind of cool to see that. Looking at how the brain responds to acute hypoxic stress, uh, we've used optic nerve sheet ultrasonography, so looking through the aqueous medium at the dispensable optic nerve sheet, and as it changes, it mirrors changes in intracranial pressure. So just looking at the basic physiology for 40 plus years, we said, well, you know, you get altitude, you don't want to out the brain cell. We've had no data to prove that. So trying to get at the idea that, hey, you know, maybe we're scientists and we can figure this out. Um, and then a few other things. So one of our current projects, and we'd love to see move forward, and we've got a bunch of different ways we're coming at it, is exactly that idea of providing a scientific objective uh, measurement for the acute stress of the brain that occurs because of low oxygen states. So right now, <laughs> we use the Light Louise criteria I named up in that same place, which is a completely subjective uh, assay. So it's as if uh, you know you had a, a malignant melanoma and you went into your oncologist and they said, all right, on a scale of one to three, you know, tell me what you know value you're gonna give your melanoma and we're gonna use that to predict your course. I mean it's crazy talk. So the idea of coming up with a syndromic diagnosis, like you would for ACS. So for ACS, you know, you need chest pain, you need positive biomarkers, you need characteristic EKG changes. So if we could come up with a means of objective diagnosis of the acute stress of the brain that occurs on low oxygen states, I think that would be pretty cool. And kind of one of the ways we're going about this is now about three years ago was approached by uh, Warren Thaypal and Vansi Mutha, and they had been looking at... Uh, through a, just an enlightened series of experiments in mice, had found uh, that hypoxia was not only not bad for uh, mitochondrial disease, but was actually extraordinarily prolonging the lives and even reversing the disease in the brain, both clinically and uh, radiographically. So just as far as background, Warren is um, one of my heroes. He's up until about eight years ago, was the chair of Mass General's Department of Anesthesiology. Um, extraordinarily accomplished, really one of the prime movers for nitric oxide use uh, in neonates and transferring uh, circulation. 
Um, and while he was the chair of a major department at a pretty big medical center, he was heading down to Antarctica for a month or two every year, studying the dive response of Waddell seals. You know, they're happy, smiling on the surface, dive down 800 feet for 40 minutes, and they come back up happy and smiling. It's like crap, man. We go three minutes, and we turn blue and look ugly. Um, you know, there's something we can learn from this. Um, and so he is just one of those great souls. Um, Bamsey is rapidly on course to becoming that. Bamsey looks like he's about 12 as a full professor, MacArthur uh, Award winner, um, and just extraordinarily accomplished, one of the top two or three people in the world playing with mitochondria and just a joy to work with. So they uh, had that experience looking at in, in dust four knockout mice, which Lay syndrome is the most common manifestation of uh, pediatric disease from a mitochondrial origin. And these kids inevitably die. They get to maybe, you know, one, two, uh, three, four, and they die, and it's a degenerative kind of terrible death. And all kinds of things have been tried. A lot of it hyperbaria and things. The feeling is, uh, using the analogy of wood stove, so if a mitochondria is kind of the engine, the wood stove um, that keeps us warm, kind of makes sense in our experience that, you know, if the wood stove's not working very well, you open up the door, blow on it, and, you know, you hope some flames come and you get some warmth and things move along. But what they're finding is both increased FiO2, increased uh, pressure, um, so hyperbaric treatment had no effect. And so the idea that hypoxia would have beneficent effect still strikes me just bizarre, and we're all kind of shaking our, scratching our heads and trying to figure out why this is. Um, but it does. What they found is uh, by dropping the FiO2 from you know, 0.21 to 0.11, um, had a remarkable effect on these mice. And they're very smart people, and they know their mice very well, but they're like, you know, who's crazy enough to be taking human beings to an equivalent FiO2 of uh, 0.11? It's like, oh, Stuart. Um, and so they reached out to me, and we moved rapidly from uh, the bench to clinical trials. So for the very first time in my life in the last 18 months, I've been doing research in the hospital, and that's really, really nice. It's uh, easy. You can turn on the light, and you can go to the bathroom, and all kinds of other things that uh, when you're on top of a mountain are much harder to do. Uh, and what we're really working to do right now is establish with the IRB, um, which has been extraordinarily solicitous of our work in Nepal and other places at altitude. But if you're taking patients at a sea level hospital and having them stack, you know, 75, 80%, you know, what was fine in Nepal is definitely not fine on the 13th floor of the MGH. Um, and so getting nursing staff and other people comfortable with the idea that, you know, just because you're on the steep part of the curve, we all as clinicians get very, very nervous when we start, you know, watching the sat, 89, you know, down, down, down. And it's like, you need to do something quick because we're getting ready to fall off a cliff. But that's inevitably because of poor physiology rather than poor environmental conditions. And so this is a hypoxia you can uh, reverse literally in 20 seconds. And so getting everybody on board with that, looking at a bunch of different uh, biomarkers from metabolomics work is really what we're doing now. And the idea is we're just laying the path for when we get to a human trial. So unlike the nitric oxide work that Warren did, where there was a bunch of, you know, you can't do this to kids, you're going to kill them, you know, and we got to you know, work through this very slowly and deliberately, and kind of by random chance he had an opportunity and turned on the nitric oxide and the baby went from blue to pink right in front of everybody, and it's like, okay, you win. 
Um, and so that's kind of what we're working towards. This is going to be a lot more delayed response. Uh, so again, the idea of biomarkers and other immediate uh, indicators that we can look to would be useful. Uh, we're doing a bunch of other things. One of the great things about being in an academic medical center like this is you got a bunch of smart people who you get to play with. So um, we keep working on that. One of the other things that, again, the idea of moving technology out in front of the hospital, uh, we've got a colleague at the Brigham, Sam Katz, who's working on a portable magnetic resonance device, which is, you know, you think about an MRI or in fact, practically they weigh multiple tons. Um, so they're very cool ideas, and we got people that are um, up to Ashton Carter, the secretary of the DOD, was like, hey, this is pretty cool. So um, there are a bunch of different ways that what you do outside of the hospital have people who are interested, capable of funding, and most importantly, having a significant uh, clinical effect. So whether it's in back of EMS, or other spaces, it can be very useful. Like an ultrasound, which requires somebody to actually read it, um, with sometimes some limited, but it, sometimes more advanced medical savvy. The thing about a resonance device is you can put it on an idiot gauge, so an EMS, you know, pop it on the chest, and you can say, oh, yes, you're very dentist. Um, and you wouldn't need to be able to read how it feels to be alive or anything. I'm moving pretty quickly. Are we still all together? <laughs> So uh, the work we're doing, this is Max Holmes, who's second in command at the Woods Hole Research Center. If you ever get a chance, um, they are a cool organization based on presently in Woods Hole. Um, but they're doing a bunch of different work. And we were asked to get involved with them after one of their senior scientists had um, a bad outcome in Siberia. And so part of what we do, and through my work with Knowles, and um, other groups has been the idea of risk mitigation. So if we can try to make sure people are uh, poised to succeed in the field uh, by screening them, making sure their diseases are stable, um, that's helpful. And then we provide in the field uh, medical support. And anywhere we're working, I want us to be doing, working clinically, I'd love us to be doing research. And so looking at ways, Siberia's, you know, roughly where we were right up uh, above uh, the Arctic Circle, where dumps out, the Kulima River dumps out into the Arctic Sea. Um, you know, it's maybe 150 feet above sea level, so there's not a lot of altitude work. So I started thinking about how we could look at maybe mercury as a distant stand-in from uh, a long way away for the effects of uh, industrialization on this even extraordinarily remote portion of the world. So where we were working is a little town of Chertsky, which is up there, it's southern time zone, east of Moscow, pretty big country, uh, Russia. And uh, to get there is a bit of a haul. But once you get there, it is just stunningly gorgeous. Um, and that's something that a lot of work we're doing in Alaska. Uh, if you look at it on the macro scale, it's like, ah, it's kind of boring, it's kind of flat, it's a little green. Um, but if you get it all closed, especially in the summer, um, there's just a riot of color and noise. It's um, so a pretty spot. So what we found, and this surely uh, by happenstance, um, we've got the, the red Russians and the red, white, and blue Americans. And you can think of uh, selenium as being a protective agent uh, against the ill effects of mercury, uh, and mercury obviously being less good. And what we found is in the Americans, they had higher levels of selenium usually um, derived from the diet. 
uh, and then the Russians, and we had much lower levels of mercury. And if you put those two together on the far right of the screen, this linear mercury ratio, that's really what's predictive of the likelihood of uh, bad physiologic effects. And so we're seeing significant amounts of uh, mercury and potentially mercury toxicity in this population, which is bad for them, but again speaks to the idea that the coal being burned in the Ukraine and in Western Russia seven times over the way is accumulating all the way out there. It's something that uh, kind of speaks to the, the global process of climate change. And that's something that it's long been a strategic concern of ours. We're getting more and more active in that, just in that uh, it's something that I think morally, as physicians, we need to be uh, better at communicating. I've got a couple of, uh, I'm not producing my own stuff lately. I've had very nice people write stuff. Um, but Harvard Magazine had something recently, and then Orion had something I'll talk about briefly. Um, they just kind of moral charge of position to advocate for our patients um, is something that uh, I think we need to do a better job at. As people say, uh, even when I started, you know, talking about this ten years ago, um, the idea that you know climate change is coming, it's like, no, climate change is here and it's having real effects on our patient populations already, and it's only going to ramp up. And I think it's particularly interesting that it's the most conservative groups, so U.S. military, uh, the reinsurance industry, the idea, you know, you buy your insurance from Liberty Mutual, and then some Swiss um, giant corporation is buying up all that additional risk. So like California, uh, the fires there, they're going to be probably maybe hundreds of billions of dollars, certainly multiple billions of dollars. And so it's these groups that are ultimately going to be responsible uh, for holding the bag and the idea of real estate in Florida. You know, at some point, people are going to start realizing, you know, we live on you know, 10 feet above sea level, and our house isn't going to be here, and we need to sell it. And when enough people start doing that, you have a vast swell of um, flooded. So whether it goes underwater or not, you're going to have a huge economic loss. And so just being able to think ahead and say, this is going to happen. If you were absolutely mercenary, the idea of like Paulson bet against uh, mortgages in 08 and made a trousel load of money. You know, if you want a you know, pretty good bet in the next 50 years, the uh, real estate market in Florida, it's just going to implode. And so you bet against it and you know, you'll probably do pretty well. And the idea of you know, greed being a pretty good motivator for a lot of human beings, I think us in the room are probably less well represented than most. Um, there are ways that this is going to play out that it, if the story is told, the system will work. People will start addressing it, but it's, um, it's coming. And then the key idea, again, getting back to the economic drivers of this, is the idea of environmental justice. So inevitably, it's the people with the smallest carbon footprint, the ones who are contributing least to the problem, who are going to get most screwed. And I mean, that's an age-old story. It's nothing new. Um, but this little kind of dot of Green in the middle of the blue is the island nation of Kiribati in the South Pacific. And they're already fully planning on their country not existing, um, maybe in the next 10, 20 years, certainly within the next 50 to 100. So they're training their citizens in healthcare, especially because it's so portable. So they're going to New Zealand, they're going to Australia, and the idea that an island nation can just disappear off the face of the earth this isn't hypothetical. They're, they're planning, they're, they're getting ready. Um, I throw this up here, this again, just please, if you're interested at all in this, um, Ben did a great job just talking about some of the different uh, problems we face. 
Uh, but the woman spinning the basketball in the middle is Laura Healy, the Attorney General of uh, Massachusetts. And she, evidently, is an Orion subscriber, uh, and reached out uh, Monday of last week saying, you know, this is exactly what we need. We've got a big suit against Exxon ongoing, and nobody's speaking for the health effects of climate change, you know, when you come in. So Friday, pretty much exactly uh, a week ago at this minute, um, spent a couple of hours, and they were really interesting, and they kind of played to something uh, that, again, I've been arguing for a long time, and now there are data out there arguing that the impact of healthcare providers, uh, we kind of beat ourselves up and say, oh, well, you know, we're not like we used to be in days of yore, but the ability of physicians on an absolutely daily basis, what we do is take discrete scientific data and put it in a human narrative, and we tell a story. And it's that story that allows patients to say, you know, all right, getting my diabetes under control so I can make my daughter's graduation, yeah, that's something I can buy into. Um, and so it's that ability to put science into a human form is uh, key. And one of the things I took away from that meeting was that very clear uh, idea that you know physicians have you know whether they're writing letters to the editor or advocating on the local, or the state, or the federal level. Uh, we have a unique seat at the table, and we're not often filling it, so we could be uh, taking advantage of it. So where do we work? We're kind of scattered all over, and we have again nice fun people to play with from the DoD and other people. The goal of our fellowship, as would be of this fellowship. It is to train expert clinicians, so that's really my stock in trade. Like, I, you know, it's great if you're already one funded and other things, but I want somebody who's good at the bedside, somebody who can take care of a patient, um, and somebody who can pass along that passion uh, to future generations. Again, physician scientists is something that um, is what you do in academics and what we like to do, um, but it's uh, something that can follow. One of the great things about uh, both emergency medicine, just given the breadth of our scope, uh, and wilderness medicine, is there are a bunch of different fun people we get to play with, from radiology and surgery and anesthesia, pulmonary and critical care, uh, and BAMC and systems biology. They're just a bunch of different things that uh, for wilderness medicine and plug in with an existing, vibrant uh, medical ecosystem and play well. Uh, one of the fun things we get to do with cardiology and pulmonology and others is our Harvard High Altitude Medical Associates, where we're assessing people's ability to go to altitude. And some of this is, you know, I'm going to be flying to Vail next weekend, you know, what should I do? And um, one of them was the gentleman who recently set the uh, speed record for highest seven quickest seven summits uh, ascents, and he in his later 50s was saying, I feel like I'm slowing down, and there's something physiologically wrong. It's like, dude, you just have a freaking world record. <laughs> you're in your later 50s, and you get in my tail, so no, I think you're fine. Um, as I said, the, uh, there wasn't a fellowship. A large part of my career has been trying to figure out what I wished had been there when I came along and wasn't, so trying to make it happen. Um, Standard had the first program in the country, uh, and unbeknownst to me, I started the second one uh, in 05. They're now 18 across the country, um, hopefully 19 with uh, Dartmouth showing up there in the near future. You've got an exquisite ecosystem here. Um, we accomplish our mission uh, through the three legs of the stool, research, teaching, and clinical care. Our teaching is pretty broad-based, everything from pre-EMT to attending level uh, CME courses. And our 
particular development was ironically a surgeon came to me. So we have a seven-year sur surgery program, five years of it clinical, two of it research. And I have a very old school at that time fellowship director. And so Peter Feganholz, who's now trauma staff at MGH, came to me and said, you know, can I uh, do my research time with you? It's like, <laughs> Peter, I don't think you understand the, uh, the lay of the land around right here. Charlie Ferguson will sign off on an emergency physician supervising you, a surgeon. Uh, and, uh, sure. And he did. Um, so it's kind of thing. We went from there. We had so much fun. We started uh, with EM fellows, Tracy Parker's Cushing, down in the middle, who uh, is co-editor of the book. And I uh, started the program in Colorado, and have kept going since. Again, wherever we do any clinical work, I'd love us to be teaching and doing research, and we've kind of done that pretty well. Again, we spend an inordinate amount of time uh, pushing uh, keyboard keys, um, but in some service. And this is one of the great jokes, I think, and one of the great pleasures of my life. Uh, to my knowledge, we're the only uh, academic uh, division department of medicine in the country that has a poet laureate, and Jerry Schneider, if anybody is aware, it's just one of those great big brains in the world. Um, was at the original City Lights reading in uh, 1956 in San Francisco. That uh, Allen Ginsberg, a dear friend, uh, all the other deep poets were, and he's gone on. And it's just been uh, extraordinarily uh, productive. So when he said, yeah, sure, it sounds good, <laughs> it was elected. So next steps in uh, medicine, and I think this is kind of one of the undergirding uh, precepts of my career that I wasn't really aware of, but the idea that what we do is portable. It's, we take care of people, and the idea that hospitals um, are where we provide it um, exclusively, it just doesn't make good sense. Um, and so the idea that we are able to extend medical care anywhere on the planet, and that academic medical centers, they're not terminals, they're not places you have to go to. It should be a runway. It's a way of moving what we do out into the world. Um, and these runways sometimes can lead to places like Alaska, where we've done some work in the past. And then just a couple of years ago, I got a call from Lucas Kraut saying, hey, you know, I'm calling from Norfolk Arctic Borough, and I know Alaska pretty well, and I had to pull out a map and say, well, where the hell is that? <laughs> and um, so if you've got Anchorage down here, Coquitan and Denali, this is all the way up. Kotzebue is up on that little spit of land. Um, and it's about an Indiana-sized chunk of real estate that these people are responsible for. It's Alaska Native uh, owned and run. They're about 7,000-plus citizens. It's the largest Anubiac-speaking uh, area left in the world. Uh, a lot of people still are subsistence living. So uh, mammals, marine mammals, berries, um, are something they've been doing for 8,000 years um, and doing it damn well. Uh, but unfortunately, with the advent of uh, essentially Western influence, there's a significant burden of substance use, of poverty, depression, uh, domestic violence. Uh, and so he said, you know, I'd like you to come up and uh, take a look. So before heading up, I looked into some of the health demographics, and in a lot of ways, they made Sub-Saharan Africa look, um, you know, not so bad. So how native health is playing out in the United States is pretty uh, stunning. So part of it was the health side of things, and part of it was the planetary influence, what was going on 
there. Uh, just the Arctic is warming at least twice as quickly as the temperate latitudes. And where it gets to be scary is that's where, obviously, the permafrost is. People think about, well, permafrost, you know, what influence does that have on me? So across that giant band of uh, the northern hemisphere, we've got an average of about 1,800 feet of permafrost. And all that permafrost is is, you know, carbon chains that are longer than not that are being locked away. And if you were to metabolize, as is happening right now, that 1,800 feet of carbon, we would roughly add times three the total amount of carbon that's extant in the atmosphere. So we've gone from about 280 parts per million pre-industrial to about 411, and that's having big effects. And so we're talking about over uh, 1,000, 1,200. And it's a positive feedback mechanism. As it gets warmer in the summer, it's uh, melting more, it's freezing less in the winter, and that just is going to accelerate. And so this is ground zero for climate change. Uh, that gentleman there in the middle is uh, one of his last domestic trips as president. Uh, Obama came to this extraordinarily remote place um, because it is. It's uh, ground zero for uh, changes in the climate and how they're impacting uh, human beings. So I got up there and, you know, this is, uh, people are, kids are jumping in water that literally two weeks before had ice floating in it. It's like, okay, these are my people. Uh, and uh, looking at the mission as you walk into the hospital, um, it's like, okay, that's something I can stand behind. So the hospital itself, as you can see up on stilts, because it's built on permafrost and you got to keep the ground cold. And you walk in, it's got a foyer, not unlike any other in the lower 48. You went to the trauma bay, and it's like, hey, this is pretty much the same thing we would have in an ED. And they've got a CT scanner. It's like, you're golden, man. We got no problem here. This is, this is easy. Uh, and you start talking to the administration, they have an extraordinarily visionary um, and practical administration, and liked talking with them, started looking into the nuts and bolts of how the system worked. Um, the fact that you could get locally grown and remain lettuce, I thought was pretty cool. Um, and that your chief means of transport was a four-wheeler. It's like, okay, this is interesting. And you have nice, bright, sunny days, and then uh, around 2 o'clock in the morning, the sun very much fill up, and you start looking around, and you see cracks in the facade of, you know, there's some... Uh, real suffering here. There are a lot of forces that need to be uh, absorbing some stories. Uh, this is a Quinset hut that, as you can see, has been perforated by about 500 bullet holes. Um, and you can just kind of get the feeling for the cold and the uh, lack of something to do. Uh, you see it in sewage ponds that are just open holding areas. But then you look behind it and you've got this extraordinary beauty. Um, dug a little bit deeper, and one of the chief problems they have and it's one that you face on a daily basis, is getting the right people to the right place at the right time. And so Kotzebue is really the hub, and you have a series of 12 villages around there. And for a good majority of the time, the only way to get there is by air, because either the ice is coming out, you can't get there by water, it's not frozen enough that you can take a sled. Um, and you're like, well, this is fine. I've flown on smaller planes, and this isn't that bad. And then you start landing in these small villages, and inevitably you see... And so there are definitely ways that you look around and say, this is one of the clinics. And it's like, that's a beautiful clinic in a village of about 800 that's uh, 60 miles from the closest other population center. 
and they've got an extraordinary uh, association of community health aides. And these are people, some of them, it's like not even a basic EMT and on up to a level five, which is a competent mid-level practitioner. But these are people who, by definition, the villages are set up on the tribes and on families. So these are people who are on 24-7, year in, year out, and they're taking care of family members. And it can be you know, the alcohol-related GI bleed, it can be the tobacco-related COPD, it can also be the 12-year-old one up there. We had a 12-year-old um, take their uh, four-wheeler into the side of a, a, a shipping container, multiple blood traumas. And so just the extraordinary uh, emotional burden, not just intellectual and medical burden of caring for people in these circumstances, is something we're trying to figure out ways we can help. They have a very well-developed telemedicine service, and we're working on ways we can help in that. So with the oil on the North Slope, it's not that they lack for money, it's just they lack for um, some of the talents that places uh, like academic medical centers can provide uh, in full. And so in conversations with our chair of internal medicine and some of her people, just the moral and professional imperative of us getting outside of an academic medical center into an underserved area is absolutely critical. And Katrina and uh, Toby have been uh, Matt and I have been very good and have started a fellowship in rural health. They're predominantly based on interacting with the Rosebud community in South Dakota, um, but are very interested in the work we're doing in Alaska and will join us there. So we're essentially uh, coming into the Katsubu Hospital as the plans. We'll provide the emergency services um, and teaching. Uh, they'll be involved in some of the inpatient care. And it's just a great way for emergency medicine and uh, internal medicine to work together as we do in hospital. So to get that expertise out into the world. So we have a bunch of different programs and we're looking at synergistically trying to address by teaching some of the social determinants of health, by providing jobs and expertise, and just some structure of meaning that we all need um, and that is sometimes sorely lacking right now. And with that, I will stop and let you go. Any questions? administration has been very solicitous. For the Nepal work, that's blocked out. So for our fellowship, they have three months. They're in the Everest Space Camp area. And so that's blocked out. So they just happen to be there when things went wrong. Um, in some of the other disaster response, uh, we just have an understanding that, you know, if somebody needs to go, we'll cover the ship and we make it happen. Um, and so it's all of this wouldn't have happened without an extraordinary uh, vision of my chair um, in the hospital of, you know, this matters and this is something we do and we can pick up the slack. Um, so that's a large part of it. Following that up, the funding source. Yes. That's an excellent question. It's me seeing patients. So this is almost exclusively, um, and certainly in the beginning was only uh, a matter of us seeing patients, you know, days, nights, weekends, um, and using that, those revenues uh, to allow us to go out and provide care um, and do research elsewhere. I think one place that last is kind of uh, interesting is we actually would have a funding stream. It's like, holy crap, we go out and do good work and get paid for it. Um, not a lot of it. Um, so
So that's something we've had some research money from the DOD, from uh, the Center for Integration of Medicine and Innovative Technologies, which is a Harvard uh, MIT group, um, some NIH monies. Um, but we run a really tight ship, um, and uh, so far it's worked. Uh, we've had some generous philanthropic support intermittently um, that's helped advance some projects. But for the most part, it's it's clinical care, and uh, our fellows work 0.6 FTE uh, in the emergency department, and that helps to um, fund the project. It's ultimately, I think, cost neutral um, if you don't take any of my time into account, which I don't. Yeah, I, I want to follow up what Chris was saying. It sounds it sounds like there's wilderness medicine, which is a environment that's uh, austere mm -hmm. in there, but then there's sort of disasters, and disasters are you're sort of saying are uh, provocateurs of wilderness, of austere conditions. And what I just wanted to ask was, um, it sounds like it's more of an international problem. You don't know where the next disaster is going to occur. And so I was wondering if it's, I think Chris was getting at this, rather than relying on the goodwill of uh, particular institutions that are uh, from affluent places, is there any systemization that's being planned? The United Nations would strike me as being something that would be uh, for disaster response, or for yeah, for health oh, yeah, care, healthcare delivery in a disaster, right? There are a number of them, and we oftentimes are embedded in. Japan was unique just because I was over there for a couple of years, and it was one of those things I got up, heard the news. That's why at that point, two year old was climbing on my head at five o'clock in the morning. Then <clears throat> the disaster, the earthquake was right off the coast of where I lived in Japan, and so I felt this immediate pull, even though twenty years had passed. So it was like, oh, this is terrible. I well, you know, called my Japanese friends. They were all okay. So I thought, I'll write a check. And through this bizarre series of coincidences, it went from, you know, I'm sad, I'll write a check, to 24 hours later, it's like, holy crap, my schedule is completely cleared for the next two weeks. I'm going to Japan. Um, and so that's part of it for disaster. Yes, there are extant, uh, both private and federal and governmental uh, organizations. And that's typically who deploys but what we found is we get getting invited um, to join these teams uh, largely because of the Haiti response. As I, I talked about with the EM group, uh, you know, obviously Haiti now has endemic cholera that it didn't have prior uh, to the disaster because care providers who were very well mean uh, showed up and they didn't have basic camping skills, which is part of what we teach. It's like you need to be able to poop in the woods and not have it contaminate water sources. And that's pretty basic, but now you've got a hell of a lot more people who have died and continue to die and will continue to die into the future of cholera in Haiti um, than you know, before the saviors showed up to help. So um, a lot of the skills we teach are, again, it's just as basic camping skills and being able to take care of yourself. Um, and if you can do that, then you can take care of others. For a lot of experiences, again, in Haiti, which is warm and you know, it's not even cold, you don't have to worry about a lot of things. Um, but if you have people showing up, no matter how vast their medical expertise, and they can't take care of themselves, then they're a burden on the system. And that's very much what we saw. And so a lot of what we teach, and we've got a great disaster division at MGH who we work closely with, and I don't want to, you know, I don't need anything else to do. Um, so that's, uh, but it's something that we can work well together. Similarly with ultrasound and with other groups, there's just a lot of intermingling uh, going, you know, this is your area of expertise. I'm happy to contribute what I know. It's worked out very well. Any other questions? Thank you very much.